This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are so delighted to welcome two of our pediatric specialists today. Uh, first, you'll hear from Dr. Leila Shirazi. She is our Associate Director for Pediatric Optometry. And then you will hear from Mon- Dr. Manasa Indiram, our Medical Director for Pediatric Ophthalmology. Uh, I'm going to turn it over for, to Dr. Shirazi. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Ramanathan, for the introduction. So as Dr. Ramanathan mentioned, I'm uh, Leila Shirazi, uh, one of the pediatric optometrists working at UCSF's um, uh, Pediatric Ophthalmology and Adult Strabismus Clinic, along with Dr. Indram. So today we'll go over some of the common conditions that affect kids, some terminology in terms of provide, you know, different eye care providers, different conditions that affect kids, as well as their management. And then some of the guidelines, uh, recommended guidelines with respect to um, seeing kids in clinic. So to start, you know, why do kids come to see us? How do they end up in in our exam chairs? We know that they're not great historians. So how do we figure out who we see and who we don't see? It all starts with pediatric vision screening. So Typically, these are done by pediatricians, by family practitioners, nurses, schools, churches. Um, A lot of you who may have kids, you know, have already had this done. Your kids go through them regularly. The first screening is typically done um, in the newborn nursery. And basically, they're looking for gross abnormalities. They're looking for structural abnormalities with the eyes. They're looking at the reflexes to make sure everything is normal with either eye. If there's an abnormality that becomes an urgent referral and comes to our exam rooms. If there isn't, then the child is um, monitored regularly by their pediatrician at the well check visits. And we know that, you know, the first year of life, um, babies go through a lot of well check visits and then eventually they sort of um, graduate to yearly visits. But these screenings are most effective if they're done periodically. And the reason is that kids are growing. So just because they pass the vision screening one year, doesn't necessarily mean that the following year everything is the same. So unless if you're doing them periodically, you know, they may not be so effective in catching problems with the eyes. So one of the reasons that's really important for um, us to have these vision screening guidelines in place is because one-fourth of American school children actually have vision problems. And a lot of times young children don't know that they have a vision problem. We and, you know, hear this from parents that they had no idea, they never said anything, or I didn't see any squinting, they weren't running into doors or walls, you know, we, we just didn't know that, you know, they have an eye problem or that, that they need glasses. And the reason is that for children, you know, what they see is what they know. So that's their baseline. They don't know that they could see any better. So they think it's completely normal. So a lot of times they don't verbalize any complaints to their parents. So these vision screenings become especially important in this population who may not be able to um, sort of advocate them for themselves or, you know, um, say that they have a problem. Um, the primary care providers are the first line of defense in detecting these. And the time of referral is key because, um, again, kids are growing. Their vision is developing as they grow. So if there's a problem that is either not caught or caught but not referred in a timely manner, we could end up with irreversible 
vision loss in one eye or both eyes or loss of that perception, things like that. So timely referral is key. So when it comes to, you know, eye care providers, we have pediatric optometrists and we have pediatric ophthalmologists. Both of these provider practitioners, you know, they see kids who have problems with refractive errors. They see kids who have lazy eye, misalignment of the eyes, um, learning difficulties at school. And uh, basically optometrists, you know, they do the eye training essentially, and then they do uh, extra training for pediatrics and binocular vision, and that's considered their residency. Ophthalmologists, they do that, they go through medical school, and then they do their residency in ophthalmology, and then their fellowship is that extra training that they do in pediatrics and binocular vision. The difference is that with ophthalmologists, they are actually trained in surgical management as well. So all the stuff that the pediatric optometrists do, in addition to surgical management, as well as some of the sort of more complex cases, higher acuity cases that you need to sort of escalate to the next level and have somebody else, you know, take a look at optometrists in those cases refer to ophthalmologists. So some of the pediatric um, uh, conditions that are common and, you know, these are, you know, the, the common conditions that we get referrals for uh, very frequently. Um, of course, by far the most common one is, you know, needing glasses amblyopia or lazy eye, strabismus, which is sort of like the umbrella term for misalignment of the eyes, abnormal red reflexes, bumps on the eyelids, so styes uh, or chalazy on the um, technical term for it, and then the nasolacrimal duct obstruction, and we'll go over uh, these conditions together. So refractive errors, you know, what are they? You know, they, they, they get really confusing for everyone, especially the first two, nearsightedness and farsightedness. By definition, myopia is when the eyeballs grow bigger than average. So first of all, it can't get better anymore because the eye can't shrink back anymore. It can get worse or it can stay the same. Now, in contrast, you might think, oh, okay, farsightedness is when you can see far away, but you can't see up close, but it's not. And that's why I don't like the term. So farsightedness, by definition, it just means that the eyeball is smaller than average. So you can imagine most kids are farsighted because their bodies are smaller, their eyes are smaller. It makes sense. And a lot of times you actually don't need to correct for it because the human eye can easily compensate for it when it's young. Number four, anisometropia is when you just have a big difference between the two eyes. So for instance, one eye is nearsighted, one eye is farsighted. Or both eyes are nearsighted, but one is significantly higher than the other one. Or both eyes are foresighted, but one is significantly higher than the other one. So, and then, you know, the last type of refractive error that we were going to discuss is astigmatism. So astigmatism is when the structures of the eyes are not perfectly spherical. So it causes shadows and distortions in images. Um, it affects both distances when it comes to vision, but typically it's um, more bothersome far away because naturally when things are far away, they're smaller. And when they become, when they uh, come closer, they get magnified. So that shadow or blur doesn't bother us as much. And then the question is, okay, how young can glasses or contact lenses be prescribed? How young is too young? So always remember there's no set age when it comes to prescribing glasses or contact lenses even contact lenses. And the reason is that we want the connection between the eyes and the brain. We want the eyes to see clearly in, at, at all ages. And if they don't, we run into problems with lazy eye, which I'll cover next. So 
you know, we can have babies as young as a few weeks wearing glasses, even wearing contact lenses as young as a few weeks. In fact, at UCSF, uh, one of the one of the types of the exams that I see is fitting babies and, and infants and babies with contact lenses. These are typically the babies that are born with very severe um, eye issues such as cataracts and, you know, uh, they need to wear contact lenses to see clearly. But they're, it's never too young to wear glasses or contacts. If it's needed, we prescribe for it. And the reason is amblyopia or lazy eye or the risk for it. So to understand why this happens, if you've had kids, you may remember that, you know, when they're first born, they're not necessarily looking at your face. They're not making eye contact. Their eyes are just wobbling back and forth. And the reason is that the visual cortex, which is sort of like the seeing part of the brain, it's sort of underdeveloped when babies are first born. And as they grow, as the eyes are open and send information to the brain, the brain, the visual cortex of the brain, it develops based on the feedback that it gets from the eyes. So if there's a problem with the eye, whether it's a structural problem or there is a refractive problem, meaning there's a big prescription in one eye or the other, or there's, a, there's something that's sort of like a barrier to, to light. So there's a cataract or there's an opacity on the cornea or something. All of that creates a barrier, creates an issue between the connection between the eyes and the brain. So the eyes are no longer sending good information to the brain. And now the brain is developing off of bad feedback. So if you don't catch this in time or fix it during you know, the sensitive period, now you're going to end up with lazy eye that's irreversible. So the vision is permanently down in that eye. Typically, and, and you know, the, the amblyopia or lazy eye is actually, you know, by far the most common cause of monocular vision loss in children. And a lot of times is because, well, one, kids are not good historians, so we don't know when they have problems. And then two is sometimes they start sneaking, you know, when the pediatricians are doing the um, uh, vision screenings or if the nurses are doing the vision screening, they start peeking through the fellow eye, the good eye, and then they pass it and, you know, goes missed. However, you know, we're getting better and better at catching this uh, sooner during the critical period. So different types of amblyopia, like we were saying, you know, you have refractive or there's a prescription issue in one eye or both eyes, strabismic when there's a misalignment of the eyes or deprivation. So you have a cataract or an opacity in the eye. And when it comes to treatment, basically you have to eliminate the amblyogenic factor. So you have to eliminate the problem. So if it's a refractive issue, you prescribe glasses for it. If it's strabismic issue, you fix the misalignment of the eye. Uh, if it's a cataract, you take it out. So you remove whatever that was causing the problem. And then you have to let the eye catch up, right? So I always tell parents, the brain has picked a favorite eye. We need to break that cycle. And think of the brain as like um, cement. When they're younger, it's kind of like wet cement. You can mold it however you want. When they're older, it becomes sort of like dry cement. You can't change it as easily. So the sooner you catch this, the better. So we know that if you catch it by age three, 90% curable. Beyond age 10 or so, very, very hard to treat. And that's because the visual cortex is fully developed. So it's too late. You're outside of that sensitive or critical period to fix it. 
So I'll pass this on to Dr. Indram, and then Dr. Indram will continue with strabismus or misalignment of the eyes. All right, thank you, Dr. Shirazi. Um, so I'll continue on with one of the other most common eye conditions that we see in children, um, and this is strabismus. So strabismus is basically a term for any sort of misalignment of the eyes. Each of our eyes are actually controlled by six different muscles that allow it to move in different directions. The middle two muscles that allow the eyes to converge or go inward are called the medial rectus muscles. The two on the outside that allow the eye to diverge or go out are called the lateral rectus muscles. And then there is an inferior rectus and a superior rectus that allow the eyes to move up and down. And finally, we have two oblique muscles, inferior oblique and superior oblique that allow the eye to rotate in different directions. So this is what allows our, our, our eyes to look in different directions and work together. Um, strabismus is when one of these muscles has an abnormal amount of tone compared to the other, causing the eye to not be straight, but be in a, in a form of misalignment. It's actually much more common in, um, in our population and as any form of strabismus or eye misalignment. Um, occurs in about 4% of the US population. And in children, it's actually even more common. Um, many of our studies actually quote a prevalence of about 5% of children that have a form of strabismus. Um, the most common cause of this eye misalignment in the pediatric population is due to an abnormality in the brain's control of eye movement. So while we have these six different muscles that allow the eyes to move in different direction, what's different directions, what's ultimately controlling it is um, the, the pathways in the brain that control the tone of these muscles and allow the eyes to look in different directions. However, um, other forms of eye misalignments can occur due to trauma itself to the eye muscles or an abnormality to the eye muscles or some abnormality in the brain itself. Strabismus can occur um, in any person. It can occur in someone who's completely otherwise healthy, but there are certain risk factors that um, predispose certain children to develop strabismus. And the first is having a, a family history of it. So if there are other members of the family that have an eye misalignment or a lazy eye or amblyopia um, in childhood, then there is a higher risk of this being passed forward onto um, the subsequent children. Um, prematurity is also another known risk factor for the development of eye misalignment or strabismus. And then other disorders that affect the brain, such as cerebral palsy, uh, Down syndrome, hydrocephalus, which means increased pressure in the brain, or any form of brain tumors can also result in an eye misalignment. So there are several different types of strabismus that we see, and I'll sort of go through the most common ones that we see in the pediatric population. So esotropia is a type of strabismus, which means crossing inward of the eyes. Within esotropia and the pediatric population, the two most common types are infantile esotropia. And this is a um, eye misalignment that presents virtually at birth. Um, so many of our patients come in saying, and with their parents saying that their eyes have been this way since as long as they can remember, at least until, you know, from the time that they were three months old or so, and this is in which the, both eyes are crossing inward. Infantile esotropia needs to be managed with surgery. The second type of esotropia or crossing inward of the eyes that we see commonly in children is something that's called accommodative esotropia. 
Children with accommodative esotropia tend to present a little bit later, most commonly somewhere around two to four years of age is when they first start crossing inward with their eyes. Um, it looks very similar to infantile esotropia on presentation, but the one major difference with accommodative esotropia is that when we check for a glasses prescription in, in these children, we often do measure a high amount of hyperopia or that farsightedness that Dr. Shirazi was, was discussing. So the treatment for this is putting the child in glasses and he, when you put the child in the glasses, the eye crossing goes away. And the reason that this eye crossing occurs in this specific type of strabismus, accommodative esotropia, is because when this child has this underlying high degree of farsightedness, their eyes are essentially straining in order to see more clearly through this need for a glasses prescription. And as they strain, what they're actually doing is moving the lens in the eye in order to focus a little bit more clearly. This movement is called accommodation. With this accommodation, when you're doing it so robustly, it actually activates convergence of the eye or crossing inward. So when a child is doing this excessively, it actually causes them to cross inward every single time they're trying to focus. So when we put them in the appropriate glasses prescription, it allows for them to relax this need to accommodate or to try to focus through their glasses prescription that they need. And then therefore they don't need to converge or cross their eyes inward. Um, another type of eye crossing that we often see is actually not truly an eye crossing at all. This is called pseudostrabismus. So here on first inspection, when you look at this child, we see that there isn't much white that you see in the inner corners of the eyes. And so it's very easy to think that this eye, this patient has a crossing inward of the eyes or an esotropia. But when we look very closely at just that reflection of the light in the pupils in both eyes, we can actually see that it's symmetric within the two which means that the eyes themselves are actually not crossing inward, but there's an optical illusion that's being created because of this excess skin that we see um, by the nose in both eyes. This excess skin is called epicanthal folds, and it's very, very commonly seen in almost all babies and infants. Um, and the, due to the presence of this excess skin, it gives almost a false appearance of the eyes crossing inward. So here's another example of a patient that looks like their eyes are crossing inward. But if we were to actually sort of, you know, we don't usually do this in our patients, but if we were to pinch the skin by the nose a little bit um, inward and to expose a little bit more of that white in the inner corners of the eyes, we can see that the eyes are actually aligned. And it's really just this excess skin tissue that's giving that false appearance of the eyes crossing inward. This almost always resolves by the time children reach their toddler ages because their nasal bridge tends to sharpen into what we see in most adults. And so you tend to see more of this white in the inner corners of the eyes. And so that appearance of the eyes crossing inward will go away. Another type of strabismus that we see in children is exotropia, which means an outward deviation of the eyes. The most common exotropia that we see in children is something that's called intermittent exotropia. So intermittent means happening once in a while. So many times these patients come into our clinic and they look completely normal. Their eyes look like they're completely straight. But then over the course of the examination, what we'll notice is that one eye has a tendency to drift outwards. So intermittent exotropia is the most common form of childhood strabismus or eye misalignment that we see. Um, and thankfully it actually has the best prognosis. 
in that because the eyes are for some period of time aligned with each other, visual development actually occurs normally in both eyes for the most part. And the patient actually always learns to develop um, binocular vision or the use of both eyes together. The times that we need to intervene in patients that have intermittent exotropia is if the control that they have of their eyes or their ability to keep their eyes in alignment starts to decline. So if someone reports that their eyes are drifting outward more than they actually are aligned, those are the times that we would think about doing various forms of treatment. And these treatments could include needing glasses, doing eye patching if the vision is worse in one eye than the other, or potentially needing an eye muscle surgery. Other forms of strabismus that we can see, so we had an inward drifting of the eyes and outward drifting of the eyes. We can also have vertical misalignments of the eyes in which one eye is higher than the other eye. And so many times that we, when we see these vertical misalignments of the eyes, it can also be associated with an abnormal head position. And in children, most of the time when we see these vertical misalignments, we see an abnormal head tilt of the eye. And the reason that this happens is that when the, this vertical misalignment occurs, it's worse when the head tilt is to one direction. So here we can see that the vertical misalignment is worse when this child is tilting their head to the left versus when they're tilting their head to the right when the eyes are, are appearing more aligned. So many times when children come into our clinic, they're actually referred because of this abnormal head position. Um, this is called torticollis. And so whenever a child presents with an abnormal head position, we're always looking carefully for an underlying eye misalignment to explain this. So in this case, this patient too had an abnormal eye alignment that was resulting in this left head tilt posture. And so this child underwent an eye muscle surgery and then ultimately had aligned eyes and a correction of their head posture. So when it comes to the management of strabismus, there are multiple ways to, to treat it and it all depends on the type of strabismus that you have. The underlying diagnosis will dictate the treatment. So there are certain forms of strabismus like that accommodative esotropia in which there was a need for glasses as the underlying cause. For those types of strabismus, we prescribe glasses. Sometimes prisms can be put in those glasses. So prisms are a special type of lens that bend the light that enters into the eye so that images are equal between the two eyes. This is actually more commonly used in adults, but rarely it can be used in children if there is a form of misalignment of the eyes that's happening all of a sudden and later on in childhood that results in double vision. The other form of eye treatment that we do for strabismus, which is what I mostly see patients for, is eye muscle surgery or strabismus surgery. And so this is the mainstay of treatment for patients who have infantile esotropia or that type of crossing inward of the eyes that happens at birth, or for children in which the, the eye misalignment is not resolving with these more conservative methods, then they often need eye muscle surgery to realign their eyes. The way that eye muscle surgery works is that we're basically altering the tone of the muscles that are, that are um, moving the eye in different direction allowing them to equilibrate between the two and allow the brain to then have equal images in the two eyes. So the two different ways that we can move the muscles are by moving them further back. This is called a recession. By doing this, we weaken the muscle or we make, it, um, make its pull a little bit less strong, 
or we can make the muscles stronger by resecting or taking out part of it. By doing that, we make the muscle shorter and therefore a bit stronger. So for instance, if a patient has a crossing inward of the eyes, we would want to weaken the inner two muscles that are pulling too strongly to allow the outer two muscles to have an equal force. Or if the eyes are drifting outwards in exotropia, we would want to weaken the outer two muscles to allow the inner muscles to pull inward. So this is what this child here had and uh, surgery for an exotropia. And so you can see the redness on um, the outside corners of both eyes from their eye muscle surgery. So there are multiple reasons that we consider doing eye muscle surgery. Um, the first that we wanna do it, especially in children, is to prevent lazy eye or amblyopia, which Dr. Shirazi talked about. If the eyes are misaligned, um, and they are remaining misaligned during the years of development of um, eye development, what happens is, well, if it were you or me or an adult were to have an eye misalignment, we would get competing images between the two eyes that our brain isn't able to reconcile. And for us, that would manifest as double vision. But in children, the brain is actually quite remarkable in that rather than allowing there to be double vision, what the brain does is just shuts off the image in one of the eyes so that the child is basically only using one eye to look out at the world. But if the brain is continually shutting off the image in just one of the eyes, then that eye is not going to be able to develop um, as robustly as the other one. And this is what can result in amblyopia when there is a misalignment of the eyes. So in order to prevent that, we wanna put the eyes in alignment such that the brain is receiving an equal input from both eyes. The second reason that we would wanna do eye muscle surgery or strabismus surgery is again, to allow for this equal input and from both eyes coming in. And what this will do is if both eyes are able to perceive the same image, then you can have binocularity or the ability to perceive depth, three-dimensional vision. Um, unfortunately, binocularity cannot be developed if both eyes are not working together. And then the last reason we do eye muscle surgery, strabismus surgery, in children and also in adults is for reconstruction. So even if there is no chance of improving vision or preventing amblyopia for whatever reason, or if there's no chance of improving binocularity, for instance, if an older child presents to us, there is still a good reason to, to realign the eyes just to restore a sense of normalcy, to allow for better psychosocial development. And I see this a lot in many of my teenage patients who come who have lived with an eye misalignment and have had um, lots of impact socially and realigning the eyes really makes a difference. And so these are just some, you know, some images of a couple of my adult patients where here this patient had an exotropia or an outward deviation of the eyes and was commonly mistaken for not paying attention or for not being um, you know, not being intelligent and, you know, having a realignment of their eyes really just allows them to have, a, you know, better confidence in themselves and better perception externally. And then same thing for an inward crossing of the eyes, realigning of the eyes really does tend to, to give a little bit more sense of normalcy for the patients. The next most common referral that we get is um, an abnormal red reflex. And so this is a test that's performed as part of the vision screening that Dr. Shirazi described in pediatricians' offices and nurses' um, offices and schools. And it's, and it's basically a quite simple test in which we can really gain a lot of information. Through this test, um, the pediatrician basically shines a bright, spe uh, special type of light 
equally in two eyes, in both eyes, and you can tell if one eye has an unequal reflection back. The normal reflex that we expect to see is red. That's why it's called a red reflex. If one of the eyes looks pale or even white, then we are concerned that something might be in the eye that's blocking that reflection back. And what we are concerned for when we see something like this, this white in the pupil is um, something like a tumor in the eye that's called a retinoblastoma, a cataract, which is an uh, opacification or a clouding of the clear lens in the eye, or something um, like even more serious, like a retinal detachment, which is a detachment or of the back layer of the eye. So because these require urgent intervention and often an urgent surgery, these are considered um, you know, an urgent evaluation or need for evaluation by one of our specialists. Sometimes, however, when there's an abnormal red reflex, it's not actually due to something that's as scary as this first, this first category. It could even just be having an asymmetry between the refractive error or the need for glasses in both eyes. And so if there is a difference in this refractive error, it can actually even manifest like in this picture here, the second picture of having this abnormal uh, red reflex in one eye versus the other. And then finally, having an eye misalignment, like in this third picture, can also result in an asymmetric reflection between the two eyes, just because of the difference in the way that the eye, the light is hitting between them. But in the, in the back of our minds, we want to make sure that we're ruling out a um, more nefarious uh, reason for having this asymmetry between the red reflex. We always see these patients urgently in our clinics. So um, I'll allow Dr. Shrazi to talk about styes. Okay, so another common conditions that, a condition that we get referrals for often in our clinics is a bump on the eyelid. And I'll go over the mechanism with you and you realize why this often doesn't need a referral. And it's actually overprescribed for in terms of medications. Uh, because once you realize what the mechanism is and what causes this bump on the eyelid, you realize that, you know, it's something that can be, you know, taken care of at home. So basically, you know, a sty or a chalazion, the reason it happens is it's essentially an accumulation of oil in the eyelid. So take a look at that lower picture. You see these tubular shaped structures in the eyelids, upper eyelids, lower eyelids, and they're called meibomian glands. And the purpose for these glands is to produce oil into our tear foam, which makes the tear foam very nice and smooth. It doesn't allow the tears, the watery part of the tears to evaporate too quickly where we end up with dryness in our eyes. So some children produce thicker oil, which sort of causes these glands to get clogged more often. And sometimes they produce regular amount of oil, but uh, or regular consistency of oil. But you know these glands get clogged for whatever reason. So there's debris, there's crust, you know different things that can sort of clog the openings of these glands. And um, basically, the oil can't come out anymore, and it starts accumulating there. And instead of being kind of nice and clear and liquid, it starts becoming harder and becoming solid. And that's that bump that you see in the upper picture. And the reason that medications don't work for it, antibiotics specifically, is because it's not an infection, right? So the best treatment for it is hot compresses. And the concept is, you know, kind of like putting butter in a pan and turning on the heat. The goal is to heat up that, you know, salt, now solid oil so that it becomes liquid again. And then it comes out, the gland opens up. 
the sooner you do it, the better, the more frequent you do it at the beginning when it first shows up, the quicker you can um, get rid of it. If, you, um, if it stays there for too long, sometimes hot compresses just don't do it anymore. And then you need surgical sort of drainage. So basically the surgeon um, puts a cut in the, um, uh, over the bump and then, you know, or under the bump, you know, from the inner, uh, inside the eyelid, and then they just scoop up the, the, the fat um, that way. And um, again, you know, we're, we typically recommend, you know, four to five times a day of these hot compresses, you know, 10 minutes at a time. And granted, these are children, right? So they're not going to sit there and let their parents do it for 10 minutes at a time. So a lot of times it's sort of like, okay, get as much as you can, give them a break, do it again. But you have to be uh, very adamant about it and doing it frequently during the day, during that, you know, first few days, if you want to get rid of it quickly. And then uh, another common condition that we get referrals for is nasolacrimal duct obstruction or NLDO. And uh, for those of you who've had children, you may have encountered this. Um, sometimes infants, newborns, and um, they, they develop, you know, uh, some tearing and yellow discharge from the corner of their eyes. And the reason this happens is because the drainage channels, you know, where the ducts that, you know, drain our tears from the eyes, they haven't fully opened up. So if you look at that top picture, you see the tear duct and you see that little opening at the end of it. That opening hasn't popped open in some infants. And basically the tears try to drain from the eyes into the nose and they can't. And then they come back up into the eye. And that sometimes causes extra tearing or even discharge. Some babies develop a little bit of infections from it. And really the best way to get rid of it, 90% of cases, it does open up with a little bit of massaging. So you see that lower picture where there's a finger on the side of the nose and basically you sort of like massage from top to down. So upward and basically you're trying to put pressure into that duct so that at the end of the duct sort of pops open with that pressure. You do that regularly enough for the infant and 90% of them just resolve spontaneously within the first year. Now, 5% of them don't. And beyond these 12 months, if it's significant amount of tearing, or, you know, causing infections, then you, um, we have to do a procedure called probing and irrigation. Uh, in the adult population, this can be easily done by an optometrist or an ophthalmologist in the exam chair. But in the pediatric population, because, of course, babies and children in general, they're not going to let you do that. Basically, you put a probe in, you sort of dilate the opening near the, in the corner of the eye, and then you push saline solution through it to um, pop the tear duct open. So children are not gonna let you do all of that. So then the procedure has to be done under anesthesia. So we really try to get rid of it with massaging if possible to sort of avoid anesthesia. But if necessary, some infants do go undergo um, this treatment to uh, pop the tear duct open. So next up, you know, one of the questions that a lot of our friends and family and you know, patients ask us is, when is the good, a good time for my children to be examined by an eye doctor, um, other than you know, the screenings that the pediatricians are doing? So fortunately, pediatricians are very, very good at you know, these vision screenings, and they're getting better and better. They're, they have access to new devices now, you know, the photo screeners that Dr. Indra mentioned, and um, you know, screenings in general are getting very good. Um, and like we said earlier, you know, during the first year of life, uh, babies end up in the pediatrician's office for those well checks very frequently. And at each well check, the pediatrician is checking, you know, the 
checking for red flags, essentially. They look for tracking, they look at the red reflexes, um, they look for um, red flags in terms of, you know, cataracts or retinoblastoma, or, you know, if there's family history of any of these conditions, you know, they make the referral for the baby to be evaluated, um, you know, during that first year of life. Between age one and three, the common reasons that pediatricians make referral is presence of strabismus or misalignment of the eyes. If that tearing or discharge is chronic and persistent in the eyes, or if the children fail the vision screening. So again, a lot of times these are through uh, photo screeners. And again, they're the small devices. They look like little iPhones and they hold it in front of kids' eyes and it gives an estimate of their prescription. So if the device flags them to the outside normal limit in terms of refractive error, they make that referral just to be sure. Of course, you can get false positives from it too, but it's always better to be you know, safer to check um, to make sure that the device was wrong and we're not actually missing something that could potentially cause amblyopia or lazy eye. And then between the ages of three and five, then the child is now able to do some sort of, you know, visual acuity testing with actual letters and shapes and numbers, et cetera. So, you know, when um, for three-year-olds, you know, if their visual acuity is worse than 2050, typically they make that referral. For four-year-olds, if it's worse than 2040, for five-year-olds, if it's worse than 2030. And any child, regardless of what they were able to achieve in office, if they fail the photo screener, they still make that referral. Another reason in some of our um, older children who are school age, another reason why they're referred for eye exams is when they're not performing well at school. So they're not reading at grade level or, um, you know, teachers are concerned about possible learning disabilities. This referral is made so that we can ensure that uh, vision problems are not contributing to their learning difficulties at school. And uh, these are some of the resources from uh, uh, all of our societies within pediatric ophthalmology and pediatric optometry. So they have a lot of um, good uh, gloss glossaries and, you know, uh, information. So if you want to look up different conditions, see examples of it, photos of it, all of these resources are great um, uh, to sort of guide you in the right direction. And um, they're also really good videos in those in those um, um resources as well, in which you can watch some of the specifics that we talked about, um, even including eye surgery, if you're so inclined. And then um, I'll just, you know, finish off by saying, you know, we purposely kept this talk pretty brief because pediatric ophthalmology and eye conditions can be um, uh, quite confusing to a lot. And we wanted to make sure that we had ample time to answer questions from um, everyone. And I think that maybe answering them live would be helpful. Um, but you know, we're open to, to hearing from you from the, the Q&A and we'll be happy to sort of speak through some of the questions that you may have. Um, one of the questions that I see um, in the Q&A is about the nasolacrimal duct obstruction. The question is, why not use that treatment to pop the tear duct open in the first place just to pre uh, prevent use of anesthesia? Uh, we, are you um, referring to the probing and irrigation or the massaging? Um, if the massaging, the massaging is our first line of treatment to prevent um, use of anesthesia. But if we are not able to pop the tear duct open with massaging alone beyond age 12 months, then we have to do the uh, irrigation with the saline. But of course, in babies and kids in general, you, they're not going to sit still 
um, or allow you to even, you know, approach them with the syringe that's going to um, uh, push that saline through the tear duct. So then you have to put them under anesthesia to do that procedure. And, you know, the main rationale that we, we like to, to wait before um, doing it, before 12 months before doing it, is that there, um, the, in, the chance of it clearing up on its own by 12 months is so high. It's, uh, you know, about 95% of infants will clear up on their own without any intervention. Um, and so because that chance is so high without you know, without needing to go under anesthesia and also undergoing any potential risk of surgery, which thankfully is minimal, but anytime you operate on someone, there is a potential for risk of complication. Um, because the, the, the chance of it is so high to resolve on its own, we always give it a shot before, before we assign a patient up for surgery. Um, there is um, another question about, eye, a couple of questions about eye muscle surgery that I think the same question here is, how do you know how far to move the muscle in the OR, that recession and that resection of the muscle? That's a great question. Um, and so the, the, the way we know how much is that we first take detailed measurements in our clinic appointments about essentially the degree, how much the eyes are misaligned with each other, how much they're turning inward, how much they're going outward. And we measure that with prisms, which is um, you know essentially a way to, uh, to like we talked about, have the, the light that's entering into the eye be bent in a certain way that we can figure out exactly how much the eyes are misaligned from each other. Then based off of that number that we get from that prism measurement, um, there is an algorithm that we use that um, is based off of many, many thousands of patient cases over many, many years that um, tells you how much to move the muscle based off of its degree of misalignment. So if a patient has a 20 degree misalignment, it's a much higher amount of movement of the muscle that we would do versus a patient that has a 10 degree of misalignment. Hopefully that was a, uh, an answer to that question. Um, do you, a question? Mary Danny, could I ask a question about that? Uh, do you have a different algorithm that you use in children versus to correct abnormalities of uh, like muscle abnormalities in adults? No, actually it's the same measurement that we use in both children and in adults in terms of the, the amount that we would move the muscle back and forth. The techniques that we do in adults are a little bit different in that um, we can allow for a little bit um, of more of a post-operative adjustment to basically personalize the surgery to adults, um, to each individual adult. Um, and we do that in adults because the when we have uh, adults who come in with eye misalignments, it tends to be a bit more complex than with children. But the um, algorithm that we use is actually quite similar between the two. There's a question um, in the chat in the Q and A um, that um, are stripe patterns enough to prescribe glasses for a tiny child, which I think is referring back to an earlier question that was asking how do you measure vision in a baby in an infant or a child when they can't you know cooperate with actual you know they don't know letters or they can't do matching with the shapes and numbers. So when it comes to checking vision in children. Yes, there are different methods that we can use. Um, there are some crude ways of, you know, you can show them toys and stickers, see if they are able to follow it with each eye individually. 
And then you look for preference patterns. So are they getting more upset when you're covering one eye versus the other eye? Are they following better with one eye versus the other eye? Followed by, you know, showing them the strike patterns to see if, you know, how well they do in either eye. And then eventually, you know, if they can do the visual acuity testing, you know, you have a baseline, you can compare the two eyes. However, in the pediatric setting, all of these um, sort of subjective results are good information to have, but the entire exam and the decision-making with regards to whether a child needs glasses or not or further treatment is done based on our objective results. So we dilate the the eyes, you know, and through the act of dilation and relaxing the focusing muscles of the eyes, the doctor is able to check the refractive error. So we're able to check to see if the child is farsighted or nearsighted or if they have astigmatism, how much of it, is it within the normal limits for their age group or not? We have guidelines that we follow with respect to norms for each age group. And if a child is falling outside of those norms, regardless of what their visual behavior was or what visual acuity we got in them, we follow those guidelines with respect to prescribing. So it's great to have subjective results that sort of go hand in hand with our objective findings, but we do not by any means rely on their subjective responses when it comes to prescribing and managing. We do all of it based on our findings objectively. There are a couple of questions regarding pediatric cataract. Uh, One in terms of how common it is to have a child with cataract, what causes that, how cataract surgery might be the same or different than in adults, and how you choose the correct lens implant if you choose to implant one. A great question. So to answer that first part of that question, it's not very common for a child to have cataract. Um, So the incidence of a a congenital cataract or a baby that's born with a cataract is very low. I think it's like one in 5,000 live births um, can be born with a a congenital cataract. Um, In the pediatric population, again, it's it's low. So an acquired cataract or one that develops in childhood, again, is is pretty rare. Um, The causes of congenital cataract, it could be idiopathic, which means that there's no underlying cause for it that's known. Um, Sometimes there could be genetic causes. So if there's a family history, um, a child can be born with a congenital cataract. These tend to present bilaterally. Sometimes there could be structural abnormalities in the eyes and in the the development in utero that can result in a cataract in one of the eyes. Um, This is called persistent fetal vasculature. Um, And then sometimes there are some metabolic diseases that can result in cataract. So other, um, you know, metabolic diseases that affect the rest of the body can cause a cataract in the eye as well. So in terms of the, the surgical management of it, it is quite different than it is in adults, than it's done in adults. The surgical techniques are different as well. The instrumentation is a little bit smaller. Um, and the reason that it is, is because the, the lens, even though there's a cataract in it or uh, no, a clouding, the lens itself is actually much different in texture than than an adult cataract or an adult lens. An adult lens tends to be a little harder um, and a pediatric lens is very, very soft. And so because of that, the instruments that we use are more um, to aspirate or to just suck out the lens itself rather than to break it apart or chop it up. Um, and then the other techniques that we use in um, or other sort of nuances for pediatric cataract surgery is that 
in children who are less than 12 months, if so if a patient comes in with a congenital cataract, it's very, very rare that we would put in an intraocular lens implant. And the reason that is, is that the pediatric eyes are much smaller, especially these infant eyes, and the intraocular lens implants are made for adults. That being said, intraocular lenses can fit in an infant eye, but because the eye itself goes through a rapid phase of growth during those first two years of life up until the first seven years of life, we usually don't put an intraocular lens in, implant in until a patient reaches that age because it'll affect our ability to select that lens implant. So you might remember from one of the, the, the earlier talks from probably one of the first talks about cataracts in adults, um, a lens implant is put in to replace um, the cataract lens to allow the eye to focus. The, these lens implants can have multiple degrees of powers um, that will um, correct the refractive error or the sort of the size of the eye. In children, because their eyes are continuing to grow and it grows really rapidly in the beginning and then tapers off, but continues to grow well into adolescence, it's really difficult to choose these lens implants because you're sort of choosing one based off of a moving target. So achieving that sort of perfect not needing to wear glasses after pediatric cataract surgery is not possible. All pediatric patients who um, get a Im lens implant put in, or even if they don't get a lens implant put in, will need to have some form of refractive correction afterwards, either through a contact lens or with glasses. So um, choosing that lens implant is a much more challenging thing than in, a, in adults. And so for that reason, in infants, we, don't, we, we not, don't put a lens implant in until they're much older with a second surgery. And then I guess, uh, um, would you have to replace the IOL in the future in these rare cases? So many times, yeah, if, the, if a lens implant is put in um, at an early age and the refraction or the, the, um, you know, the, the eye, the, when the eye grows, if that lens implant doesn't, it, it requires a higher and higher degree of needing glasses in the future, many times these patients will need to have that lens replaced or they'll just need to continue wearing higher degrees of, of glasses prescription. Along with other things that happen in in young age, the topic of nystagmus has come up. Could you just briefly go over sort of what that looks like and how, if it is different when associated with different pediatric diseases? So nystagmus refers to an involuntary to and fro movement of both of the eyes. It's almost like a shaking of both of the eyes. Um, there are multiple different reasons that a patient can develop nystagmus, a pediatric patient especially. Sometimes it um, is a, um, just something that's, that, that the child is born with. We um, call this a, a motor nystagmus or congenital motor nystagmus. And for this, um, it's kind of like an eye misalignment, eye strabismus, where there might not be an underlying um, abnormality in the brain, but it's just sort of... Um, uh, a motor dysfunction that causes the eyes to move in the, these abnormal patterns. For these patients that present with um, this congenital form of nystagmus, most often they actually have good vision in both of the eyes. There's no other abnormality structurally in the eyes or the brain that's explaining it. And so for those patients, they often present with again, another form of abnormal head posturing. And so if they present with an abnormal head posturing because when they're looking in one specific direction of gaze, the nystagmus tends to be a little bit less. We can correct that nystagmus by 
or correct their head posture actually by doing an eye muscle surgery. But many times when patients present with an astagmus, it's actually a reflection of an abnormality inside of the eye or in the brain. And so an abnormality that's affecting their vision. And so when we see this, we call this sensory nystagmus or an eye movement abnormality that occurs due to lower vision. So I think in that particular question, there was a question about coloboma. So coloboma means an, a missing tissue within the eye that or tissue that doesn't develop normally. So if there is a coloboma on the back of the eye, such as in the retina or in the optic nerve, it can result in low vision. It can result in this nystagmus. So this form of nystagmus, unfortunately, you can't do anything in order to treat it because it's a result of this um, structural abnormality. I love this last question because I think it's something that we often think about. If we see somebody who has eyes that aren't straight, we want to look at them, not look sort of mysteriously at them. How do we address somebody so that we know that we're looking where they're seeing us? That's a great question. And um, it's actually a very good point because we do know that there are definitely psychosocial concerns when it comes to strabismus. That's actually, as Dr. Andrew said, is one of the reasons that some people seek strabismus surgery, even though they're not having any symptoms. Um, so basically, and please, you know, feel free to jump in, Dr. Andrew, but so a lot of times people who have strabismus, they are able to quickly switch between the two eyes too. Not all, but some are able to switch. So sometimes that can get more confusing for people who are talking to them. But sometimes you might notice, you know, there's one eye that's, you know, making eye contact with you and the other eye sort of drifted. So if you are able to kind of locate that eye, then, you know, look at that eye and, you know, continue just chatting with them. And if you're not, I think just don't overthink it because sometimes they switch back. You know, sometimes they're looking at you with this eye and sometimes looking with the other eye. And just, you know, if you're able to switch as quickly as them, do it. If not, don't overthink it and just talk to them and ignore it as much as you can, I would say. I don't know if um, Dr. Ramanathan or Dr. Indram, if you guys have any better advice. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, many times, especially when it comes to adults, they've been living with this for quite some time and they're very aware of it also. And so if they see you struggling, they might actually just tell you, actually, just look at me with this eye. This is the eye that I like to look out with. And they'll, they're, many times, you know, they'll, they'll give you that feedback themselves. Or if it's someone that you feel comfortable with, you can ask them, you know, tell me like if I'm, if I'm, if we're making eye contact, you know, in a way that doesn't seem like very, um, you don't want to sort of call too much attention to it, but at the same time, just making sure that, that you know, that they know that you're looking at them, but it is a challenge. And it's one of the main reasons that many adults actually present to us because they have this, this, they can sense when people are not looking at them and their, and their eye, and they want to make sure that that's, that's not going to um, impede their sort of their interactions. And so that's one of the most common reasons that we see patients who present to us for, for strabismus, um, reconstruction for surgery. And in fact, a lot of the patients who do undergo strabismus surgery, that's one of the, uh, one of the comments that they make, you know, feedback that they give us is my confidence has improved because, you know, I'm not self-conscious about this. People are making eye contact with me and they're not, you know, trying to wrap up conversations because they're getting anxious about my eye turn. 
Um, there's a question in the chat about whether it's bad to sort of cross your eyes on purpose. And I'm going to expand upon that question and say, what do you think about exercising the muscles and looking sort of non-straight on purpose to force your muscles to sort of work harder? Is that, what do you think of all that? Well, I'll let you take this one. Sure. <laughs> um, so eye exercises, you know, they've, they've been around for a long time and um, to some extent they, they are evidence-based in terms of treating, treating certain um, disorders of virgin. So for instance, people who can't converge their eyes. So, you know, if you try to look at something up close, your eyes have to converge, right? Some people are not able to do that. And when they try to look at things up close, their eyes have a tendency to diverge. In those cases, you know, certain eye exercises that, you know, work on convergence, you know, bringing things closer, or we call them pencil push-ups, they are proven to be effective in improving convergence. But as far as I know, looking in different directions just to exercise the muscles without looking at anything specific, I don't think there is any evidence that, you know, that is going to do anything. And one of the reasons is that our fusion so our um, able ability to sort of um, look at things and keep it fused, you know, use the two images that comes from our two eyes and keep it fused and see a single clear target. It's not only, you know, coming from the muscle harmony, but it's also coming from the brain. So just, you know, looking in different directions, you know, and moving your eyes without purpose, that's not going to do anything in terms of um, exercising the eyes per se. Oh, and then to answer the question, uh, should we tell not should we tell our children not to cross their eyes? Um, I don't think there is any harm that's going to come from it. Their eyes are going to get tired if they keep crossing it. But uh, I know there were a lot of you know sort of myths back there that oh, if you do it, you know, it's going to get stuck or you know things like that. I don't. There is no um, there is no um, truth to that. Well, I want to thank you both for a really interesting discussion of pediatric eye disease, common pediatric eye disease. Uh, what a tremendous impact to correct these visions, in, these visual problems in children so that these kids can have a lifetime of good vision and prevent sort of the burden of visual decline or, or visual incapacity. Uh, it's... Uh, it's amazing what you guys do. Uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us. And uh, I suppose if people have qu further questions, they can reach out um, uh, through, a through our clinic and uh, see you there at UCSF. Thank you so much. Thank all of thank our you. people in the audience. Take care and have a great evening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.